I always think it's important to be really honest with yourself. And I think a lot of people get that. They reflect and they think back and they know these are my strengths, these are my weaknesses. And I completely think everyone should do that. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, friends. David Wright here, and I am your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. And this afternoon, I'm joined by Mike Weinberg. Mike, thanks for being on. Thank you. Glad to be here. Mike, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the organization you're with today and your current role? Yes. So I am the Chief Information Officer for Tosca. I've been here for a little bit over three years. You know, our mission is to revolutionize the flow of goods through the food supply chain. And we say we want to eliminate waste at every term. So what we're really doing is maximizing the supply chain uh, performance by reducing costs, increasing efficiency while using a sustainable solution. So we're really going at using reusable packaging solutions to achieve that. That's great. I'm really excited to learn more about that, especially, you know, we're really passionate about sustainable development goals. So it sounds like you guys are really in alignment with that. So yeah, I'll look forward to learning more about that. Before anything, though, we'd like to ask, what's one piece of actionable advice you might look to give our listeners today? Sure. So one thing I always like to tell people is I'm talking to folks that are new to leading, especially to leading teams, but I think it's even applicable to individuals, is I don't think it needs to be hard. I always tell people, think of people you've worked with in your career. And everybody has those people that, you know, they just loved working with. They can tell you their eyes light up when they talk about them. They inspired them to do their best work, to stretch further than they ever thought they could go. You know, maybe in business, it may be outside of business, but there was something about the way they treated you, worked with you, that just made you want to do amazing things. And then I always say, alternatively, think of those people that just really demotivated you. You didn't want to be near them. You didn't like the way they made you feel, and they made you unhappy. And I said, at the end of the day, think about all the things in common the people that inspired you did. Do those things. I said, and obviously, don't do the things that 
people do that demotivate you. And I think as you start to think about it, everybody starts to see a lot of common themes around the characteristics of the people that really inspired them to do great things. Yeah, I love that. And I think keeping that, for me, what I'll take away from that is trying to keep that top of mind on a regular basis, just bringing that kind of attitude. That's great advice. So yeah, thanks for that, Mike. Let's start kind of at the beginning. Where did you start out? How did you get to being this CIO of this global organization? Sure. So sort of a quick synopsis, you know, I did not anticipate going into technology in my career. I was always good at it as a kid, but I went to school because I was going to be a medical researcher. I was darned and determined. I went to school in Atlanta next to the CDC, took all the pre-med courses, and then I had a counselor say, you know, maybe you should get a job at the CDC to see what it's really like, which turned out to be great advice because while I was working my way through college doing technology uh, and fixing computers and putting in networks, after one summer of working at the CDC, I said, I have made a terrible, terrible mistake. And suddenly my major in biology turned into a minor and I became an economics and philosophy double major to which with economics and philosophy, I told my parents I would never have a job, but at least I'd know why. (laughs) But the good news out of that, though, is what happened when I graduated, there weren't a lot of jobs. So when I first started out, I started my own company. I was very fortunate to pick up some clients Uh, shortly thereafter because I I was still young. I said, you know what? Let me go work for a big company. I went to work for a retail conglomerate in their technology division, gave me a lot of experience. I worked with some really great people that I keep in touch with to this day. I feel very fortunate. While I went to school at night to get an MBA and really started shifting my focus, I worked with a lot of people that were out of management consulting, and I really started to focus not just on the technology, but the business value of the technology. And so... For me, that was really transformational. Really from there, I went down the management consulting route, You know, did the big consulting firm with Deloitte, did some other consulting firms. Um, and then in the early 2000s, I had my first CIO opportunity and it was a venture capital backed firm. It was a great opportunity. It was a really struggling firm and we took it from really struggling to very profitable. So I was very excited about that. Some things in my life happened. We had some personal family issues, uh, health issues we had to deal with. And so I had to shift gears a little bit, but I always look at things optimistically and say, you know, they lead to opportunity and went back to consulting, but that quickly led me to Intercontinental Hotels Group, where I spent really a large part of my career. So I was there for over 10 years. I actually worked with their marketing department and then quickly moved into their technology division and held several roles and really, really just an incredible time, learned an incredible amount. And then most recently, a few years ago, I had a firm identify me and said, look, we have this, we're a private equity firm. We have this company that does this stuff that I did not know anything about at the time. It was outside of my business areas of expertise, but they said, we think you'd be a good cultural fit. And I feel very privileged that they offered me the opportunity to be CIO at Tosca. Very cool. So along the way, what's one of the most important things that you've learned and what was life like before learning it and after learning? So I think for me with technology, I think everybody knows in technology who's worked in technology has heard that story of, well, the business said they wanted a car. We built this amazing car and then we brought it to them and it's like they wanted a truck and they're all upset. And so often in my career, I've heard, God, those technology people, they just don't care, which has always struck me as funny because I'm a technology geek and I work with technology people and I'm like, they're the biggest bunch of people pleasers in the world. And what I really kind of came to find out was that's also a problem. 
because we love to say yes to everything and we love to do too many things and we don't think we're over committing, but by default, because of that people pleaser nature, and that actually surprises people that are not used to working with technology folks sometimes that, yeah, when you talk to them, you're like, the big thing is they're going to try and do too much. They're their own worst enemy. So getting people to focus and really thinking about that, because I was guilty of it early in my career too, I would overcommit. I'd try to do too many things. And I really started to say, you know, it's just as, it's kind of easy to say what you're going to do. It gets really hard to say, what are we not going to do? What are we not going to prioritize? Right. That resonates with me so much. The people pleaser. I had to really, even at the onset of disruptive innovations, just that as a technologist and a consultant, I would slip into that at times, especially being a young company. And we really had to step into the role early on to ensure our success of the challenger, where we had to say, no, either it's not possible, it's not or not that it's not possible, but hey, did you consider this? Like, we need yeah. to think about that, not just, okay, we'll go get it done. So that makes a lot of sense. And it's funny, I had a similar background where I grew up building computers, studied econ and sociology in college. So I love that we kind of ended up in similar places. It's funny how that works. How about a mistake that stands out in your mind over the course of your career that you may have made or some a decision you made that you learned a lot from? Yeah, for me, I think a lot of it is I was very blessed early in my career to have these amazing leaders. And one of the things that always resonated with me was if somebody's failing on your team, look to the leader first. And that always resonated. And I actually do believe that that's something you should do. Having said that, I would say early in my career, I made the mistake of taking that too far. And so I'm a big believer culture, just like everybody, culture always eats strategy, eats execution. Absolutely. And I think back specifically to where it really went wrong for me. I had a very large development project. It was still pretty early in my career. And, you know, I had about 20 people that were just so tight knit. And I try to keep very open communication with my team members. And I, they just, we had one team member. It was just one bad apple. It's kind of that one bad apple that everybody hated. And I spent so much time trying to coach this person, trying to figure out, you know, how do we get this person up to speed that I actually ended up sort of disassociating some of my best team members. And it really ended up kind of destroying the team. The project ended up being way over budget. The project ended up being late, ended up letting that person that caused the whole problem in the first place. And, you know, one of my trusted directors I had worked with years ago said to me, she goes, your biggest watch out is you can take too long to take action. And fortunately, it was a hard lesson because nobody likes doing it. But for me, it was something that I had to learn that it's not a bad thing. If somebody, I'm a big believer in passionate, happy people do amazing things. And chances are, if they're not happy, passionate, inspired, it may be that this is just the wrong place for them. And it's better for them and for us. We move them on to something else. And we don't want to disaffect the rest of the team. Yeah, that's uh, super relevant advice now too, or a life lesson, especially with everything that's going on with workforce management and retention and attrition, just insightful stuff to think about. So before we get into your vision for Tosca, I want to ask, what's one of your favorite literary pieces, books, either that you're reading currently or all time, your choice? 
Yeah, I kind of knew this question was coming. It's tough because I have a small library of a few that I just love. Um, so you may get a few more. I will, surprisingly, because I'm such a wallflower, I am a big believer in one of my favorite books is The Happiness Advantage, which I generally buy for most of my teams. A guy named Sean Accor has done it. If you've never read it or never seen his TED Talk, highly recommend it. It really gets to that. And then there's a few others that I personally love. Like for me, I am not by nature an organized person. I hate like I know people, they are so great at checklists and they put things on the list to scratch it off. I am not that person. Having said that, one of my other favorite books is called The Checklist Manifesto because I need checklists more than anybody else. So these are books that I actually go back and reread sometimes. And just because I'm obnoxious about it, I'm going to throw out, there's another one that I love that I think, actually there's two for technologists that I think are great. One is Made to Stick, which is really more of a marketing, but it's made, it's by Chip and Dan Heath. And it just talks about why certain ideas stick in people's head. And I think that's something tech, as technologists that we need to always get better at is how do we simplify ideas that will stick? I like that. I'm actually going to pick that up. That's relevant right now. So thank you for that. And then the last one, which a lot of people know, is the Start With Why, which is a Simon Sinek classic. And it's just, you know, really great on the why is really the belief and the how is, you know, make that belief come to reality. And what is the, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a classic book, but I think it's very, very applicable. And the first one you mentioned, the happiness. Advantage. Happiness advantage. In 60 seconds, I'm just really curious now, what is the brief synopsis of that? So I'm certainly not a psychologist like Sean Arcour, and I might have gotten his title wrong. So if so, I apologize if he ever hears this. But, you know, his studies are around if people are happy, how is their performance compared to when they're not? And it's really amazing to see how much psychology is really involved in that. And it's true. And I don't think it's a big leap for most people to make. They're like, wow, when I'm really happy and excited, then you're generally inspired about what you want to do. You'll just do great things. And it talks about how do you take advantage of that? How do you maybe shift your mindset? And if you're in the wrong place, and I do think that's something that, you know, now that I'm getting a little bit older, I guess I coach people that it's life's too short to spend too much time in the wrong place. You should be doing things that you know, you enjoy, because if you are, you're probably doing a great job. And it's not every second of every day, you know, there's always those menial things you always hate doing, but, but generally, are you really excited to go to work? Is Monday, uh, or is it, wow, today I get to do this. I'm really looking forward to doing these things. Yeah, I love that. I always think about the, I get to versus I have to. That's something that my wife and I like really focus on. I get to show up for my family and I get to I have a career. I have to go to work. So that's right. It's a very small distinction, but that perspective rooted in gratitude is just so important for me. Absolutely. Uh, I'm looking forward to checking out those books for sure. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about Tosca. So, you know, what's the overarching vision for the organization and how does that translate into your vision and mission for IT and digital? Sure. So again, really our mission is we want to change the supply chain. Specifically, we focus on the food industry. So we really want to reduce cost related to reduce the cost and improve the efficiency related to moving foods through their supply chain by using reusable packaging. 
And so historically, most packaging is a one-way packaging solution, a corrugated box or something similar to that that never gets reused. For us, we say, look, there are commercial benefits to using our solution, like a reusable plastic crate is a good example, um, where you'll lose less product, your product will stay fresher, it will require less energy on the truck because it's porous, less stuff will break when it's at a distribution center, it'll be easier to sell out of when it gets to a store. So that's just one example. We have a whole suite of solutions that fall into this category, but we get real excited about it. I personally get really excited about it because to me, it's where commercial and sustainability meet. And that's what you want. To me, that's the big win-win. My sales team might kill me for saying this, but one of the first things I learned was somebody said, you know, hardly anyone ever buys us just because we're sustainable. They really buy us because we save them money, but they love, and they also get to claim we're helping them meet their sustainability goals. And I'm like, nothing's wrong with that. I was like, that should no. be an incentive. Sure. So our vision is just to keep that, you know, going into the marketplace and where it really drives with us is historically it started with just simple products, but as technology has evolved, it's becoming a real differentiator in the marketplace. And there's opportunities that never existed before, but now the technology is kind of caught up to where we're going to really be able to use it within this space. Yeah, I'm sure with IoT and LoRaWAN and data analytics, I mean, just my, my wheels are starting to turn all, already. And I recently talked, I was going to say before, is I, I recently spoke with an executive from John Deere and you think John Deere, you think tractors, but the way that they're transforming agriculture and helping these farmers and these organizations optimize the way that they're tilling land and all of that, but simultaneously making it so that when the population is burgeoning, we need more food you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now that they're being able to facilitate that is another sustainable act, if you will. So it's great to see. So what are some of the key initiatives that you guys are focused on? So we have a few key things that we're working on, I would say right now. One is that historically, while we're working with a lot of the major retailers, at the end of the day, the suppliers are oftentimes you know, farmers and some farms are really right. big and very technically capable. There's a lot of very small farms and a lot of folks that aren't as comfortable using technology. I say this because the way they usually speak to us is they pick up the phone and call us. And there's only so much you can do on the phone. And we have a great customer service department and we're happy to do it. But, you know, we have now an incredible portal that's been up for quite some time, but we're trying to get more and more adoption. And it's not just the technology team, it's really the commercial team that's working with them because as our customers start to use our portal, what they find is, wow, there's a lot of things I can do on my own that I actually can't even do on the phone because you know I want to look up my previous orders or I want to see my invoices or I want to set a recurring order or something, which is really hard to do on the phone, but very simple to do with the technology. And again, I always love the win-win thing. It's a win for them because it makes their life easier, but it's a change management thing. And you know, what right. we're finding is because we have such a diversity, sometimes we got to make enhancements. So we want to make sure that we're making the portal as simple to use and provide as much valuable data. So we've made a tremendous amount of progress the last few years with it. And I think we're going to continue as we're trying to get our final customers to migrate over to it. 
So we're trying to do that. I would say the other thing is we've been on this incredible journey. Three years ago, we were about 98% on-prem, 2% in the cloud. Uh, now we're 99 plus percent cloud. And so we're essentially cloud-based at this point, which is fantastic, lots of benefits. And in addition to that, we've retired a lot of legacy technology that also inhibited us. And I get a lot of slack sometimes. I say, you know, I don't like reports so much. And the reason I don't like reports is when I think of reports, I think of people are looking at something and they're searching and scanning and they're searching for that one anomaly. So they might have 10,000 things and they're looking for the two times that one variable is out of you know whack where I'm big on dashboards. I'm like, let's make the dashboards. technology do the work. I was like, yes. if you know that you only care about it when this happens, that's the perfect use for technology because that way you're not spending your time looking at all the stuff that you're not going to take action on. You're going to be looking for the stuff that you want to take action on. And, you know, the next step, obviously, if it's possible to say, if you can automate it, then even automate that so that we can free people up for doing more valuable <laughs> activities. And I think we're getting some real traction around the dashboards. We've been building more and more over the past couple of years. And now that our infrastructure is so much more evolved and some of our tools and applications are more cloud-based and easier to get the data out of, our data warehouse is much more robust. And there's just, you know, it's kind of like a wave. It's like, wow, can you get me this? Can you get me this? Can you get me this? So a lot of excitement around that. And then the last one, which you talked about, which is really close to my heart and is a lot of fun, is we've really been on the forefront of Internet of Things, more advanced technology over the past couple of years. We've been doing some pretty cool things the last couple of years, but because of certain technical limitations, just causing the size and expense, it hasn't always been uh, practical a couple of years ago for a lot of applications, but that is starting to really shift and we've started to do a lot more things. So obviously there's things like location that we've been doing, but now we're doing a lot of things with location, temperature, humidity, shock. So if you think we're in the food business, these are all things that affect food. So we can tell the temperature during the shipment between these places. Is it being kept the most fresh? Did somebody bang into it with a forklift or something like that? We can see all those things. So it's really exciting to see how technology is providing all this additional information. And again, it's information that makes our customers more powerful. It gives them a lot of things that really improve their business because they're able to maximize, you know, the food that gets on the shelf, the quality of the food, the freshness of the food, all that kind of stuff. So we're and making sure they're getting the right stuff to the right place. Yeah. Very cool. And how about some of the biggest challenges you guys might be facing as an organization? So as I mentioned, we went to the cloud. We, you know, with that, you can kind of presume that we had some old infrastructure we had to take care of. We've done most of it. We've got a few little things dangling out there and they're probably the parts I need are probably sitting on a ship somewhere offshore and they're going to eventually get here. So I would just say, you know, supply chain challenges, I think we're all facing it in this space is there are cases where we're like, gosh, it'd be really nice to replace that switch is a little older than we'd like. We'd like to get some new access points. I mean, it's rote stuff, but it has real implications on our business users who are like, gosh, the Wi-Fi at this place is really bad. And it's right. like, I want to improve it. So that's definitely one of the challenges. 
I would say the other things that are kind of normal, talent is always a problem right now. We're doing pretty good on the talent. We're a pretty lean organization and we leverage on a really amazing offshore resource team as well. And we've actually managed to keep turnover down very low. But, you know, when you do need somebody, sometimes it takes a little while to find somebody with the right skill set just due to the competitive nature of the market. And I think the other thing, and, and it's not, it's just a general challenge for our organization. And it's just, we've grown a lot. Three years ago, we were a US-based company. We've done three acquisitions during a pandemic, essentially, that made us a global company, more than doubled us in size, added a lot of new functions that we do. So for us, as we finished all the integration activities and all that kind of stuff, it's like there's a lot of things that we still want to do from a business perspective. And it kind of goes back to the start of the conversation. It's we can't do them all. We've got to prioritize. And so rather than do a ton of things and be fair at a ton of things, We'd really rather be really great at these things and then say, we're not going to do these things, maybe just not right now, maybe never, might be able to do them later, might make sense. And obviously those things shift, but where do we want to, both for our internal technology and for our business partners, where are we going to spend the resources we have? That makes sense. What are some of the best practices that you and, and your team follow that you'd recommend to our listeners? So the first one goes back to culture. I always tease HR departments that I do not like mid-year and end-of-year reviews. So the rule that I have on my teams with my directors who are all much smarter than me is I said, look, I said, when we do a mid-year and end-of-year review, if I ever give you any positive or negative feedback that you have not heard from me before, you have license to hit me. I said, because that means I'm not, we're not communicating. I said, there should never be anything And I said, positive, negative, you will hear it from me generally as real time as it can be. My only counter to the rule is that negative upward feedback has to be returned. You don't have to give me positive feedback. You don't have to tell me I'm great. You don't have to give me positive feedback. I don't need that. But if I'm doing something to tick you off, and I will, because everybody does, I said, I would rather know sooner rather than later. Don't let it linger. And I asked my directs, to really infuse that in their organization, the same kind of communication mentality. And I think it works. I think it resonates for most people. So that's kind of my number one rule. Some other things we do, which are a little more tactical, security is always top of mind. Everybody, we run a pretty agile kind of thing and everybody's, ooh, DevOps. And, you know, we're kind of same as everybody else. Now you got to start thinking DevSecOps because security needs to be in everything we do. I think we try to disrupt ourselves. I quote a sign from one of my kids' schools, which I still love, which said, if you're not failing, you're not really trying. And Mm. I try to put that mindset in there because I really think companies get disrupted out of business. I mean, I think Blockbuster is the big example everybody always thinks of, but there's so many others. And if you're not thinking how your business is going to get disrupted, you've got your head in the sand because there's somebody who's going to come along and think of some way to eat your lunch. And, you know, I really seek people that want to do that, that want to think, I mean, God, I sound old saying it, but think youthfully. My kids don't make fun of me because I'm like, okay, TikTok came out. You got to make sure I know how to use it. Because the reality is 
that things do change and you have to be current. And the technology world just changes faster and faster and faster. And you've got to be working with people that are thinking and live that world. So I try to really infuse that. I try to keep people constantly learning. I tease finance people. I'm like, you know, your job hasn't materially changed in the past 20, 30 years. That was like stuff I was doing five years ago, sitting in a museum. And it's not to be mean. It's not wholeheartedly true. It's just, if you're in technology, your world is change. And if it isn't, you're probably just a cog in some old machine that's going to die out at some point. And I love what you said about if you're not failing, you're not really trying because I mean, I try to, as a consultant coming into a a number of different organizations, that's part of creating a culture of innovation. And for a lot of organizations, failing meant potentially getting fired, right? So like it's a paradigm shift for a lot of organizations. And I think a lot of people can learn a lot from what you just said, because, and I think organizations that you know, employ DevOps frameworks and stuff. But like, it's kind of inherent in that kind of more, I should say more inherent, same with feedback loops, right? And from a leadership perspective, I love that as well. Like that open feedback, I think it only leads to better communication, improved relationships if delivered tactfully, right? Like I welcome that from my team the same way. And before one of the things that I learned I forget one of the workshops I did is just asking like, Hey, are you open to feedback? And, and it kind of, it's a very yeah. disarming question. It seems simple, but that's just a, instead of saying, Hey, uh, blah, 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 blah. It's like, Hey, are you open to feedback? And just easy little thing. Absolutely. Although I do feel in case my CFO listens, which hopefully he will, that one of the <laughs> things on the failing is I always say fail cheap, fail fast, which is also another one, which is true. You know, right. you don't want people betting the farm on stuff. I mean, it's within reason. But I think when you give people that flexibility to try the wins you get from it and the stuff that you learn is just so incredibly valuable. And and to me, I always say, we call it a failure, but there's really no such thing as a failure because I'm like, you just learned what not to do. And one of the reasons to tie this to why I didn't become a medical researcher was the guy that I work with, who was an incredible researcher at the CDC, said the hardest thing about being a medical researcher is that you may do... 40 years of research. And what you've done is 40 years of experiments that failed that somebody doesn't have to do because they know that's not the answer. And you need to be okay with that. And I knew myself Mm. well enough then that wasn't going to work for me. And I I mean, it's probably a little selfish on my part, but I was like, to me, I look at medical researchers that do that and say, you guys are some of the most unselfish people in the world because so much of what you do, it is rare that you actually get the breakthrough. It's all the people that are doing the experiments that are failing that that's so valuable. And I think that really carries over. You learn what not to do. Yeah, that's great advice. Okay, let's uh, get into a more macro question. Got a couple of questions left. What do you see as some of the biggest changes in your industry as time passes or some of maybe the biggest opportunities for organizations like Tosca? You know, for us, I really do think that tracking capabilities, you know, we talk about IoT and IoT can really be anything from barcode RFID through cellular. I really just think that that's the biggest thing. I think that from a technical standpoint, it's getting the challenges, the battery, you know, people who are familiar with this industry, it's all about the battery because the battery is what's so big. You know, the circuitry is small, battery is big. You want it to last a long time. Those are the challenges. 
there's some amazing work going on around the world. There's been some amazing advances made. And just like everything in technology, you're starting to see that exponential curve. And with that, you're starting to see what would it mean if I knew all of these things? What kind of analytics could I run and what kinds of things could I automate? So within our industry, I think that's going to be huge. And it starts to carry into other things. I mean, some things we're doing today, like we have a solution where a food manufacturer will put a display in a store. And historically, you know, they pay all this money to a retailer and say, hey, put my display up at the front because as you can imagine, sales go up if it's near the cash register or whatever. And they send tons of people out to the stores to say, did these stores really put my display in the front? Well, we enabled that with technology. And now, you know, they just look at a dashboard and say, hey, all of those stores are good, but these four stores, it's still sitting in the back room. It was supposed to be put out five days ago. And without having to use manual labor, again, those kinds of things, I think more and more are coming. And it's a little tangential, but I think it's important from just the techie side having the ability to do this with cloud-based technologies where we can scale not only gives you the ability to take the scale and demand up as I think more and more companies are coming this direction, but it also gives us an easier way to deal with the legalities of the world today, GDPR, CCPA, Every government seems to have their own little special rule. And uh, thank you, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google for dealing with most of that stuff for us and helping us get through that whole maze of making sure we have data in the right place and seeking out that we don't put data in the wrong place. Again, it's not you know the sexy part of technology, but it's a realistic part of our life. Yeah, the compliance and legality and all that stuff globally is like a whole other can of worms. Uh, but... Yeah, that's uh, very interesting stuff, Mike. So we like to close out the episode with, if you could go back five or 10 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Sure. So I always think it's important to be really honest with yourself. And I think a lot of people get that. They reflect and they think back and they know these are my strengths. These are my weaknesses. And I completely think everyone should do that. I think what takes more courage though and i wish i had known you know maybe 10 years ago was what's really powerful is when you share that information with the people with whom you work because so often we keep that to ourselves or we might only share our strength but we don't like to share our weakness and i think when everybody is really honest with themselves they know man if i'm really stressed this is likely a bad behavior that's going to be exhibited. And sometimes you see that if you've done any of the myriad of the Berkmans or any of the others, they're all kind of, they all kind of give you that how you're going to behave. And oftentimes people will share it by sending it out or put it, but nobody actually talks to the people and says, if you ever see me doing this, this is probably why. And feel free to call me out on it, but this is why. And if you share that with someone, what'll be amazing to you is that they will tell you theirs. And I think that's really powerful because I think people are comfortable saying, I'm really good at this. I really like, which is great. And you should absolutely do it. But when you start sharing the stuff that you don't like doing, isn't your strength or a bad behavior you might exhibit, it makes you vulnerable. And it just, I know it makes people vulnerable, but it just engenders trust and just, it's so good for the culture is what I find. And it builds these cohesive teams and you know, I've probably already said team a million times, but it's because I really believe when you build a team like that, and that's all I really do at this point is build amazing teams. 
they can do anything. I always say I could take some of my teams, take them out of technology, put them in another field, they'd figure it out because they're so bonded, they're so integrated, they're so curious, they would figure it out. I think when you can get people doing those types of things, they can accomplish amazing thing and I've, things. And I've been very fortunate in my career to have taken on some of really projects for companies that had failed multiple times. And they gave them to me, said, build a team and do them. And we were able to accomplish them. And I think that's really because of the incredible teams we had together. So, and I think part of that was being willing to say, these are things we all need to be aware of because it's gonna be hard. We're gonna be in the trenches. Great advice. Mike, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. And to all our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll look forward to bringing you more insights and interviews with the disruptive innovators of our industry next week. For now, so long. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.